0: Please turn in your copies of the scripture to Genesis 17. We edged our way into Genesis 17 only just slightly last week. We need to take it on fully, much more fully, specifically verses 15 through 27. This will be, in many respects, what we would consider a very Reformed sermon. Genesis 17, beginning at verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year when he had finished talking with him god went up from abraham then abraham took ishmael his son and all those in his house or bought with his money every male among the men of abraham abraham's house and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as god had said to him abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. I've entitled the message this afternoon, God is the Sovereign Administrator of His Covenant. Now last Sunday, just to catch us up briefly, Last Sunday afternoon, we noted the expansion of God's revelation of his gracious covenant of redemption with Abraham as described at the beginning of Genesis 17. And as we read through, the promises of God are restated. They're enlarged upon in Genesis 17, precisely at a time in the lives of Abraham and Sarah when they needed a revitalization of their faith. They believed God. But they also needed him to help their unbelief. And for this reason and for other reasons which we discussed last week, God adds the sign of circumcision to the covenant. God wanted Abraham and Sarah to look beyond the merely superficial or material conditions and blessings of the covenant to recognize the spiritual realities of being invested in covenant with God. Now that Abraham did not fail to learn and recognize the greater spiritual benefits of covenant with God is made clear when we read his words here in Genesis 17. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Abraham loved Ishmael. He greatly desired that the redemptive benefit of God's covenant with himself would pass to Ishmael. That Ishmael would be the next in his line to be reconciled to God. This is a cry that's a plea to God that Ishmael's life might stand before God as one spared from judgment and chosen to receive redemptive blessing and reconciliation to God. Abraham is literally crying out not only for Ishmael's inheritance and material blessing, but for the divine preservation of Ishmael's soul. Must Ishmael be lost? Must Ishmael be rejected? Can't Ishmael live before you, justified by faith and sanctified in his life as well? Now I want to examine this really remarkably concise prayer of Abraham and God's answer found in chapter 17 this afternoon. I want to note what that answer implies and I want to draw some application from it. A primary teaching Perhaps we might say the primary teaching which we can easily draw from this text is that God is the sovereign administrator of his covenant of gracious redemption. First let's note, as we look for evidence of God's sovereignty over redemption, let's first note that this passage teaches us that God's decree operates with sovereign independence in determining every providential means and the circumstances which attend redemption. Let me explain what I mean by that. Notice verses 15 and 16. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Abram and Sarai have recently tried to work out the circumstances which they think they need to line up for God's gracious covenant to proceed as promised. The affair with Hagar and the birth of Ishmael are the fruits of their attempt to cultivate what they think are the necessary arrangements of redemption. Now God makes it clear that their efforts are without any value in terms of fulfilling the blessings of redemption which he's promised to bring. He and he alone will declare his will and then operate in history to fulfill his will. It's not Hagar who will be in the line of the Messiah, nor Ishmael who will be the ultimate father of the promised seed. Rather, God will sovereignly choose Sarai and the son who will proceed from her to accomplish his redemptive will in history. So clearly God does, does (coughs) it's so clear that God removes that authority from Abram and Sarai that their names will be changed by God, sovereignly, to Abraham and Sarah. Now the the irony in that, brethren, is that Sarah's name means exactly the same thing. It's just a change of sound, It's it's a colloquialism. God gives them no authority over the decree of his redemption. He will even change their names as a testament to the fact that he'll change their future history to accomplish his redemptive purpose, his way, according to his will. Now, Abraham appears somewhat reluctant, maybe perhaps a bit slow, in his acceptance of God's sovereign operation in the history of redemption in his life. And we see this, I think, see the evidence of this in his cry, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. In other words, can't there be some place, some a little allowance for my will and what I want in the procedure of redemption? Can't I have some choice in the matter? Can't my desire for redemptive good to come to the man of my choice be fulfilled? Must only God's decree Must only his procedure of redemption appear in reality? Well, God's answer appearing in verses 19 forward is quite clear. The answer is that God independently reserves for himself alone the right and power to direct his redeeming covenant of grace in the history of mankind. It's not Hagar, but it's Sarah who will be the mother of many nations, the mother of all those who put their faith in God and his work of redemption. It's not Ishmael, but Isaac, who will be, be the promised son through whom the line of redemption will proceed until one arrives whom God promises will bless all the nations. Now this is a lesson that the church needs to learn today. We can apply this lesson immediately. God will proceed in human history, redeeming his people only through the means that he has chosen according to the freedom of his own independent and sovereign counsel. The church may have a great desire, like Abraham, and cry out, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. The problem with that prayer, if it's like Abraham's, is that it can be attended with a proud and unyielding independence. It could come with human endeavor attached. The church like Abraham and Sarah can make the mistake of attempting to take the means of redemption into her own hands and set aside the declared will of God in His Word. In His Word, God has spoken of the means that He has chosen to use to bring about redemption. But the temptation is to measure the redemptive activity of God with human senses and human reason and to say, It's not working. Let's do it this way instead. Let's get creative. We can generate the right circumstances through which redemption succeeds in human history, in our time, and in our culture. We need something more if revival is to appear. We need music. We need entertainment. We need to whoop it up. There there really needs to be greater psychological and emotional skill that we use to apply leverage. We need political power. We need a more culturally relevant message. We need culturally relevant doctrine and practical worship in our church. Let's make those changes, and then we'll see the redemption we want. Now, all of this reasoning seems sound, and it seems compelling to the natural man, until we realize That God has already designated to himself alone the power to determine the success of his redeeming purpose unfolding in history. God has reserved for himself the right and authority to choose the means and the times and the places of salvation applied. Like Abraham and Sarah, like their sin with Hagar and Ishmael, The church of our day has largely attempted to drive redemptive history by her own means, by human creativity and human enterprise and human endeavor. And like Abraham and Sarah, she's not produced the righteousness of God, but rather an Ishmael has been born, which is a thorn in the side of the redeemed. The counterfeit Christian has arrived. Now, brethren... If we want to be cooperative in the work of God's redeeming purpose as it appears in our history, in this time and in this place, then we need to know and to use only the means that he designates in his word as having power. Now, I'm talking about the preaching of the full counsel of God's Word. I'm talking about prayer meetings. I'm referring to the sanctified and sanctifying both activities of the church fellowship, stirring one another up to love and good works, but only as love and good works are defined by God's Word. I'm talking about even the practice of church discipline itself. These things have been appointed by God to effectually work as the providential means of grace which further the procedure of God's redeeming purpose in history. What if the church, what if she just focused on those things and stopped all of this other stuff which only tends to bring greater chaos into the church and to reduce the effectual evangelical work of the church? What if we simply stuck with the means God has appointed and what if we just planted and watered as he directs and then waited on him to bring the growth in its season? What if? We need to move on. We're looking at the teaching of God's sovereignty and redemption As revealed in Genesis 17 and so far we've noted that God's decree operates with sovereign independence in determining every providential means and circumstance which attends redemption now second I want us to note that we are being taught that God is sovereign in bringing redemption to reality in terms of transcendent power what do I mean by that God has said as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I'll bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I'll bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Sarah's an old woman. Biologically, children are an impossibility. But God has declared that he will produce an heir in her womb. And this heir will lead to a vast multitude of descendants. God will sovereignly overrule the laws of nature, which he created. And by the infinite power of his might, the creator will regenerate the womb of Sarah to produce an offspring who will be the beneficiary of his grace. Now, hearing this promise, we read that Abraham fell on his face and laughed, and he said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? Now, this laughter appears to be different from the laughter of Sarah, which we read about in the next chapter, when she hears the same promise. Her laughter proceeded from unbelief, and it receives correction. Well, Abraham's appears to proceed from this sort of state of exultation and joy of expectation of fulfillment of this remarkable promise. It's almost like an over I can't believe this is going to happen. He does believe it. His words contradict themselves. Well, since God will do that, Abraham's expectation begins to change. Abraham's expectation is hopeful to the extent that he begins to say to himself, well, since God will do that, surely Ishmael can be included in this covenant of redeeming grace as well. Now my point in bringing these verses to your attention is to show you the lesson that God rules with great power to accomplish the redemption of his people. His infinite sovereign power is revealed when he regenerates what has died in Sarah's womb and produces Isaac. The material expression and revelation of God's power in this circumstance corresponds to the spiritual expression and revelation of God's power every time he chooses to regenerate a lost sinner. Do you see the connection? There's a correspondence. A divine miracle is witnessed every time God saves a sinner by bringing them to repentance and faith in the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The birth of Isaac was literally bringing life out of death the new birth is likewise bringing life out of death this miracle has not been part of ishmael's life he proceeded naturally and we would say sinfully he's he's missing this sign of god's power in his existence his existence, we would say, is purely material. But Isaac's promises to be defined by a miracle of the Spirit of God. The significance of this difference is not missed by Abraham. And again, I think this is why we hear him cry out, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. What about Ishmael? Abraham sees the import of the power of God operating in the life of his offspring. There's more to it than mere physical life. There's a spiritual element, an element of God's blessing and love, which is being demonstrated to Isaac. And that's a suggestion of future blessing. Ishmael doesn't receive that expression of divine power in his life. And Abraham seems to anticipate the cost of his absence, of its absence. He's not wrong, brethren. Just a few verses earlier, remember we read what God prophetically declared of Ishmael's life. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. Brethren, that means exactly what it says. Those of you who have mules know what I'm talking about. He'll be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. He'll dwell over against all his kinsmen. Brethren, this is hardly living before the Lord, and Abraham knows it. Now, in terms of application of this second lesson, Let's take comfort in realizing that the reason God's redemptive purpose is fulfilled is because of the exercise of his infinite power. That power is seen in the regeneration of Sarah's womb and the birth of Isaac out of that dead womb. God's power in redemption is observed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Death could not hold him just as death could not continue in Sarah's womb. The sovereign power of God in redemption is seen in the regeneration of those whom he chooses to set his love upon. If God sets his redemptive love upon Abraham, Abraham is regenerated to believe God. And that belief is counted to him as righteousness. If God sets his love upon his son, the Lord Jesus, he exercises his power to redeem him from the grave and to deliver him from the power of death. If God sets his love upon us, he powerfully brings us from death unto life, putting a new and living heart in us, giving us the gift of faith, writing his law upon our hearts, and ultimately lifting us up out of the grave to a newness of life which will be eternal. That gives us every reason, brethren, to have an unshakable hope. Your salvation is empowered by the sovereign God of the universe. Do you think it's possible... For such a salvation to be lost. If the very power of God produced your new birth, can anything annul that new birth and bring you back down into the grave? Once the power of God operated in Sarah's womb to accomplish the conception of Isaac, could anything reverse that powerful act of God's sovereign will? Of course not. The the thought's an absurdity. To do injury to the salvation of a person, to somehow work to delete their regeneration and the faith of that regeneration is tantamount to doing some harm or injury or deletion of the very power of God. Brethren, I'm simply pointing out to you that your salvation is more certain than anything in creation. This is what we mean when we speak of eternal security. When you hear that term, it's really just a perspective of the sovereign power of God over the certainty of your salvation. You have every reason to have unshakable confidence in the salvation which God has worked in you. Your redemption cannot fail because God has birthed it and secured it by his power. Now, I think there's a second lesson in this teaching regarding the sovereign power of God in salvation as well. It's the lesson of human impotency. Ishmael was unable to redeem himself, nor do we detect any desire within himself to do so. It was Abraham who cried out for Ishmael's redemption. Nor was Abraham able to to produce the redemption of Ishmael. Abraham was right to turn to God for that regenerating grace. Only God could open Sarah's womb, and therefore only God could cause Ishmael likewise to live before him. Brethren, now I'm simply pointing out that apart from the power of God in salvation, there wouldn't be a single redeemed believer found in saving covenant with him. We need Him to come into existence as a created being. We need the faculties of our soul, our minds and our hearts to come from Him. We need to have our naturally, spiritually blind eyes open to perceive sin within and righteousness without. We need to have our affections altered to love what is good and hate what is evil. To perceive Christ in the beauty of holiness and to perceive perceive in ourselves the ugliness of depravity. We need to be made willing volunteers by his power so that we repent of sin and cling to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We need God's power to believe in the efficacy of that righteousness and the blessings of God that are promised and fulfilled in a future kingdom of holiness. We need the work of the Spirit of God in us to produce hope, to live in this world in the expectation of glory to come. We need the power of that same Holy Spirit working in us to persevere us in holiness until that day. Brethren, that's God's covenant of gracious redemption operating in our salvation in its entirety, entirely through His power and by His grace. Nothing's left out. Nothing's outside of the sovereign expression of His power. I think the application then becomes clear. There's no room for boasting in our salvation. If Isaac is redeemed and Ishmael is not, where's Isaac's boasting? It's annulled. If regeneration occurs in the dead womb of Sarah, can she take credit for it? I did that. Far from it. If God gives the increase, can the sower or the waterer or even the seed itself take credit for the growth? Therefore, when someone is saved in the church, or if we have had a hand in the ministry of the gospel to that one, let's be careful to give all of the glory for that salvation to God. It belongs to him alone. He alone opens the womb. He alone regenerates and gives growth. There should never be a place for pride in our hearts for the salvation of ourselves or another. There should never be a place in the heart of any man for boasting in himself as he examines his own salvation. It's God who kills and makes alive. No man may boast in his choice of God or of the exertion of his free will or in the life of holiness that proceeds from the regenerating grace of God continuously active in us. Go to Sarah's dead womb and demand of it to receive. Wait for Sarah's closed womb to open of itself. Wait for Ishmael to make the decision to live before God. Do you see the correspondence? Find in yourself any good thing that might conceive of faith and produce some regenerative spiritual spark in a dead soul. I dare you. It's all the same. To all of these things we say, with man this is impossible. And this thought should lead God's people to say, but with God all things are possible and now brethren now we should be inspired to cry out like abraham oh that ishmael might live before you when we pray for our children when we pray for our unsaved loved ones our old acquaintances who don't know or love the lord but are rapidly approaching his throne of judgment. When we think of their lost estate, we may go to the Lord alone as the sole source of power in their conversion. Because that's what he is. He is that sole source. We know the power of his salvation. We know the power of his gospel. It's transformative. The blood of Christ is indeed the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. There is that kind of efficacy in the power of Christ to save. But brethren, it's in him alone. Brethren, I I think what I'm trying to say is it's not reasoning or cajoling or threatening or convincing, but not through these things that any enter into the kingdom of God, but by the power of his spirit working in them through faith in his word. That's our solid ground. That's our rock of confidence as we preach the gospel to every creature and pray for our fellow man for their salvation. What else do we learn here in Genesis 17? One last lesson from Genesis 17 and we're done. We learn the lesson that God's lesson of God's sovereignty over his covenant revealed in election. Should be clear to us that Genesis 17 maintains God's sovereign right of choice in his covenant of redemptive grace. He chooses whom he'll save and whom he wills, he hardens. It was in Isaac that God had determined to fulfill the blessings of covenant. When Abraham cries out, oh, that Ishmael might live before you, in the very next verse, God responds, no. He says, no. No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. It's with Isaac alone that God sovereignly chooses to establish an everlasting covenant. For Abraham's sake, for the sake of one in covenant fellowship with God, for Abraham's sake, God graciously promises material blessings to Ishmael. But only Isaac will receive the everlasting covenant. That's a division, brethren. The greater blessing, the spiritual blessing, the covenantal blessing goes to Jacob, but God chooses to hate Esau. Now Paul reminds us that that choice was made before either child was born. In Romans 9, 7-18, Paul declares the following truth about God's sovereign choice in saving whom he will. Listen to what he says. Not all are children of Abraham because they are of his offspring, but through Isaac, shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also Rebekah, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. What shall we say then, Paul asks? Is there injustice on God's part? by no means for he says to moses i will have mercy on whom i have mercy and i will have compassion on whom i have compassion so then it depends not on human will or exertion but on god who has mercy for the scripture says to pharaoh for this very purpose i've raised you up that i might show my power in you that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth so then, Paul says, he has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills, Unquote. Now, there are many applications which could be made when we consider the doctrine of election. But for the sake of brevity and consistency, let's try to draw application for us just staying within the context of Abraham's life here in Genesis 17. Now, having said that, let's consider that it was Abraham's son, Ishmael, to whom God refused to extend covenantal grace. We see that sovereign expression of divine choice repeated, as Paul reminds us, in the life of Isaac, when Abraham's grandchildren appear. How do we apply this? God mercifully selects recipients of grace out of generations of consistently malicious, hardened, and rebellious sinners. He is obligated to save no one and we therefore ought to be careful to obligate our God to save no one. Now this is easier said than done. I believe that it was with heartfelt love that Abraham cried out, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God still said no. And Abraham had to accept that. When Jacob switched hands, remember he switched hands And he reversed the blessings that Joseph intended for his two sons to receive. We read that Joseph said, "Uh, not this way, my father. That same spirit of correction, of rebuke, can be in us in dealing with the sovereign choice of our heavenly father if we're not watchful over our own hearts. We can make even the salvation, brethren, of our children an idol. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that we are to be content with the will of God and we are to be satisfied with that which glorifies God. That's what I mean. That's our first and greatest destiny, our chief end, to glorify God. If God should so choose to glorify himself in pouring out his wrath against sin, brethren, even against the sin of one of our own children, we must learn therewith to be content that's a bitter pill to swallow. I I acknowledge that. That is no excuse also, no excuse as parents to cease engaging in the lives of our children the means of grace appointed by God for their salvation. There is no cause, this is no cause, to cease lifting up our voices in prayer and crying out to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But when all is said and done, Our first allegiance is to God and to his glory. We are not to lift up anything higher than the glory of our God. And Paul has reminded us that God chooses to show his wrath. He chooses it. And to make known his power by enduring with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. This is not what we desire. But our desire is not necessarily a righteous will. So we pray. We pray that our children will live before God. And, simultaneously, we rest in the goodness of His grace, placing great confidence in His power, preaching the powerful message of His glorious grace and redemption through His Son, and brethren, preaching it to our children. Because we believe our God is sovereign. He is powerful. His gospel is sure and certain. And he has promised to work through the means that he appoints. All the while, we remain in submission to his independent, sovereign administration of his covenant. It is his covenant. We trust him. We rest in him. We believe in him and trust him as our father Abraham did. We believe even with great expectation, brethren. We believe with great expectation that because he is sovereign, those who were not my people, I will call my people. and her who has not beloved was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, "You're not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. We cling to that hope. We cling to the sovereign God who gives us that hope. I' leave that thought with you as we close this evening.